This time, battle plans for coronavirus, UK troops train African soldiers in the Sahel, and what's life like in the RAF reserves? I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP. Contain, delay, research, mitigate. The government's revealed its battle plan for fighting the spread of coronavirus in the UK. It includes the ability to call on the military to support civilian services. Retired Lieutenant General James Bashel is a former head of Home Command. He's told BFBS that using the armed forces in this way will have an impact on exercises and deployments. I think the advantage of the military is that most people are young in the military with an average age in the low 20s. So the likelihood is they're probably fit and healthy and will survive. But if they are to take on tasks to support the police or the ambulance service or whoever they're gonna, we shouldn't assume that they're gonna be immune from catching it. And that also has wider consequences. For example, the army has troops preparing now to deploy to Mali, to Afghanistan, to Cyprus. There's exercises taking place around the world at the moment, all of which give the military contingency capability you know, how do you quarantine a barracks? What if a battalion is laid low with this? It may only last a couple of weeks, but it means that, you know, for example, the soldiers who are stood by to do op tempera are no longer available because they are ill. Well, I'm joined by General Lord Dannett, former Chief of the General Staff, as well as Christopher Lee, BFBS Defence Analyst. Uh, Lord Dannett, a, a worrying prospect outlined there. What exactly might the military be required to do? Well, so far, the government has been... Um fairly quiet on what it might ask the military to do. I mean, I think, uh, having said that, there is quite a widespread background in the military being involved in providing military assistance to the civil authorities. I mean, if you think back over the years, um, an awful lot of issues, beginning with F, whether it's been floods, foot and mouth, fuel strikes, um, fires and that kind of stuff, and now this one is a kind of flu. So um, things beginning with F hmm. seem to be the sort of thing that military get involved with quite a lot. Um, there is no doubt that there, the government may well call on specific specialist skills that the military have. We've already seen it with repatriation flights of British citizens overseas being brought back. We might see some more of that. They might also want to call on military medics, but of course we have to remember that the um, Defence Medical Services are pretty thin in their own right. And when we've deployed in large numbers to places like Iraq and Afghanistan, we've often had to mobilise reservists and bring in people from the NHS. So the um, Defence Medical Services aren't a great pool of manpower. I think where it's possible that the military might be involved is where, and these are circumstances that people really can't envisage as yet, where we might require large bodies of well-trained, disciplined people to work together on low-level skills in order to backfill other professionals uh, like the police or the ambulance service so that they can get on using their professional skills. That's possibly where we might see the military. But currently the Ministry of Defence is being um, pretty tight-lipped about what the military might do, other than saying, and it's quite right to say so, that the military is always there as a manpower resource of last resort to help the civilian community, because after all, at the end of the day, that's part of our job. I mean, it does seem that the military is being uh, turned to as a last resort more and more often these days for civilian tasks. Is that right? (laughs) Well, um, it, it seems so, but of course the irony of that is that we only support the civil authorities out of our spare capacity. And, of course, our spare capacity is much reduced. Um, Go back 10 years ago, the army, for example, was a 
over 102,000, and now it's around 73,000. So the spare capacity that might have been there years ago really isn't there now. But again, um, we are all citizens, albeit citizens in uniform, and if the nation, if the government requires us to get stuck in to help the community at large, it's part of our job to do that. Yeah, when, when, sorry to interrupt you, when you, say, when you say there isn't much spare capacity now, do you think it's going to come down to stark choices then between operations and helping out at home? Well, everything in life, everything in government involves priorities. I mean, the government will have to decide what is its highest priority. Is it continuing with overseas exercise, training exercises that are important? Um, We've got a new deployment coming to Mali. There's ongoing deployments to Estonia and, and, and elsewhere in Afghanistan, although that, that might change. So the government's got to decide where it's going to use its increasingly scarce resources. And those scarce resources are the capabilities of the Army, Navy and the Air Force. Mm. And in manpower terms, the size of the Army, which has always been the, the major pool of manpower resource, is much smaller than it was. Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is, it, is listening. It's an interesting thought here, isn't there, General, that we are... In exercises uh, such as what do we use the military for, whether it's sandbags or whether it's something to do with a, a, a virus, society starts to rethink. Perhaps we ought to have a longer think about this uh, and in the future. So, for example, uh, best people to fill sandbags and help people along a stretch of river that's overflowing, probably T.A., Probably people with local knowledge, probably people with easy access that you can move in, move out. Because getting back to the basic idea of using the military, it's there in this very sort of formal sense, an aid to the civil power. It is that important you can deploy, say, to Northern Ireland or you can de deploy anywhere in a very uh, in a security role. And it has a different sort of sense than it does when you're filling up sandbags. Or, in this case what we're having seeing at the moment you can imagine that perhaps the police maybe the police uh, in, in in trouble with numbers people sneezing quite a lot that you want people to sort of sort out traffic you want people to sort out some of the security mm. problems the basic security problems that arise that the police would normally deal with and cannot and have said they may not be able to deal with all sorts of things gentlemen stay with us because earlier i spoke to elizabeth Braw, who is senior research fellow of the modern deterrence project at the royal united services institute and i asked her if she thought the armed forces should be relied upon in this way well it's great to have the armed forces and and it's great that they're uh, able and available to do it but i think it's it's uh, dangerous and naive to think that the armed forces will always be available um, to help us with these sort of contingencies that are really not this the the primary responsibility of the armed forces <laughs> their responsibility is to um, guarantee the territorial integrity of, of the uk and, and allied countries and so to call them up to uh, or to ask them to pile sandbags well that's fine if they can do it but it's uh, uh, it is perilous to to use that as the default option what why do you think it's dangerous and naive well because uh, it could happen and uh, we should uh, expect that to be the case that an emergency or a contingency uh, happens and the armed forces are needed for something that, that they specialize in. So if we imagine, for example, a, a, a severe weather event and at the same time um, some sort of uh, 
military contingency where they need to focus their their efforts. And if we think about uh, gray zone warfare, these things could very well be combined. Obviously, not a, a severe weather event, but but uh, another type of contingency, for example, um, a hack on the grid that would uh, then leave us all without, or many of us without power, and then that in combination with uh, a, a kinetic attack. And in, in that case, the armed forces would clearly, their, their uh, primary responsibility would clearly, or priority would clearly be uh, the kinetic attack. And then uh, the rest of us would have to figure out how to look after ourselves. And I think it's also important to bear in mind that no Western government is big enough to always be available to, to help everybody. And uh, so with severe weather events increasing, and with uh, non-kinetic attacks increasing, I think uh, it, it is uh, naive to, to assume that, that the armed forces will always be available. So what is the solution, Elizabeth? Because you do have a theory, don't you? I do, I do. My solution is for uh, there to be resilience training for teenagers so they would learn emergency preparedness, in other words, how, how to prepare for, for contingencies, they would learn crisis response of what you do when a contingency happens, whether it be um, a severe um, a cyber attack that, that uh, uh, for example, leads to suspended power cut, or whether it be a severe weather event, uh, or whether it be the com- a combination of, of uh, uh, such events, uh, whatever they may be, uh, and a disinformation campaign, which is something that we, the general public, are also woefully unprepared for. And so uh, they will be taught all these, uh, well, these these uh, different aspects of uh, resilience so that in case of a, of a crisis or a contingency, we'd have this uh, critical mass of people who would know what to do and who would be able to to plug into the blue light services and the armed forces as a sort of a, a local level uh, response force. Why, why now? Do you think that we're not as good at being resilient as we used to be or are the dangers just greater? The dangers are clearly greater and, and that's because the modern society with all its conveniences offers more opportunities for, for um, adversaries to cause us harm. So. 50 years ago, obviously, cyber attacks were not an issue, and now they are. And and also, I think we've become complacent um, because it's we have lived through 30 very peaceful years, and we haven't been expected uh, to do anything for our own, uh, for the well-being um, of our community and and and, and wider society. So um, we are. We are just pretty helpless when when the, when a contingency happens. But I think teenagers are, uh, they are keen to, to be involved and to do something for themselves. Obviously, it, it, it would benefit their own well-being if they knew what to do in a crisis. And they also want to do something good for society. We, if we look at the number of people doing the DOV scheme, for example. And um, so I see enormous potential. And by the way, teenagers also learn uh, faster than, than the likes of, of you and me. So, <laughs> uh, so there's that uh, added benefit. Obviously, there is a defence review underway. Do you think that uh, recent events, recent crises uh, show that it is time to rethink uh, the kind of threats that can be posed to the UK and the armed forces' role in pre- defending ourselves against them? 
That's absolutely the case. And, and if you look at the sort of threats and, and forms of aggression that are growing, uh, it is non-kinetic threats and aggression. And so obviously we should defend ourselves against uh, traditional kinetic threats as well. But uh, it's because we are so good at defending ourselves against them that that our adversaries try other means. I mean, if we were, uh, if our armed forces were lousy, I'm, I'm pretty sure that would have been some sort of the attack against the UK. But our armed forces are very good and they should obviously... Uh, be well funded uh, in in the future as well, but but where the real lack is and the real need, um, the the real potential for improvement, it is really in in defence against. Um, non-kinetic uh, attacks and and uh, again the population is a huge resource not just young people but people of all ages including uh, retired people you know for example how can we and uh, something that could be uh, addressed in the integrated review is the potential of, of retired people in in specialist professions including uh, the medical field how can they be brought in to assist in an emergency um, and uh, that's again where we have potential that that uh, yes it would cost money but it would uh, it would make an enormous difference in our uh, response to these sorts of uh, attacks that um, that are already happening and, and will keep happening. That was Elizabeth Braw from the Royal United Services Institute. Well, still with us is Lord Dannett, former Chief of the General Staff. Uh, Lord Dannett, from what Elizabeth was saying there, it seems like um, everyone's got to do more with less that the military, both kinetic and non-kinetic, and civilians basically get better at resilience. Well, I think Elizabeth raised a whole bunch of points there. Um, let's just try and deal with them very briefly um, in order. Uh, if there are kinetic threats to this country, then we have a system of high readiness units who are trained and capable and ready to respond to those uh, kinetic attacks that might come uh, against this country. And the same applies really on the sort of cyber uh, hybrid sort of side. I, I think there's a wider point, and Christopher Lee alluded to it as well, um, in terms of being involved in mitigation of civilian disasters, whether it's floods, whether it's coronavirus or whatever, I think there is an increasing role that the Army Reserve, the Armed Forces Reserve, can play. It might need further changes to primary legislation in terms of the laws um, that are available to call out the Reserve, and that's really quite an important thing to address. Because if you think about it, dotted up and down the country, you have got um, reserve units in most parts of the country of people ready, trained and willing and able to take part. Elizabeth also mentioned teenagers. Well, OK, I get that up to a point. But don't forget that the cadet movement involves teenagers. There has been considerable effort put into the cadet expansion programme. Let's um, expand that even further and bring those cadet units into closer relationship with the reserve units and let them be uh, available to help out in civilian uh, environments against civilian um, emergencies. Mm. Um, in another life, I chair the National Emergencies Trust, which was itself a reaction to the Manchester Arena bombing and the Grenfell Tower fire where the British public was very generous. A lot of money was raised. Not all of it went where it should have gone. Um, we exist to raise money when there is the next major disaster, but we'll distribute it through community foundations uh, in local areas, community foundations working in part, if necessary, with reserve military units. So there are quite a lot of steps um, that are being taken to make ourselves as a nation more resilient to deal with 
whether it's climate, natural, man-made or whatever, disasters which are occurring fairly frequently and may well occur more frequently in the future. Interesting thoughts. Lord Dannett, thank you very much for your time today. Still to come, why British troops are training African soldiers in Senegal and the BFBS presenter turned RAF reservist. Now let's just take a moment to bring you up to date on some stories we've been following on SITREP. Uh, Christopher Lee, uh, Syria first of all, because the Turkish and Russian presidents are meeting in Moscow, follows a worsening situation in Idlib in Syria. Been losses for Turkey on one side of the conflict and the Syrian regime on the other, with Russia backing the Syrian regime. Do you think anything will come of these talks? Uh, They're going on in Moscow. Uh, President Putin said it's a mess in Syria. Fundamentally, that's what he's saying. And it's about time the two major powers got together, i.e. Turkey and Russia, uh, ostensibly on either side, on opposing sides. And perhaps we've got to get some idea of what we can do and what we can't do. I'm afraid 34 Turkish soldiers were killed the other day, probably by Russians. That does not make for peace. And coming back to something which uh, we, we, we talked about recently, last Saturday before last, uh, in the Middle East, there was a, an agreement in Afghanistan, for example, between Taliban and Americans uh, that there would be a ceasefire. And what did we get? 24 hours later, the Taliban are killing off uh, Afghan soldiers. And so this is the size of the problems. All these people who have an idea that we've got a solution Mm. in the end have no solution On that subject of Afghanistan five former military bosses including a former head of the armed forces are urging the British government to speak up about the problem in Afghanistan Um, they're saying British troops fought for something their sacrifice must not be in vain so um, this truce that's been broken already um, it looks like the peace accord will unravel do you think that's the case? I mean this this, uh, series of uh, this letter uh, written first by Lord Richards um, who was chief of the defence staff. And he's saying, you know, 500 British soldiers were killed, 4,500 wounded. Mm. We were fighting for something in particular. We weren't fighting what the Americans are fighting for. This deal is was signed between the Americans and Taliban. The people that really matter, the Afghans, were not even invited to the conference that, that actually brought about the signature. The whole thing is phony, and that is the case of the wars in Afghanistan since 1832. Now let's just uh, take a moment to reflect on an important Second World War anniversary. It'll be 75 this y- years this year since victory was celebrated over Japan in the Far East and that's a campaign, the Burma campaign, which you think is, is often overlooked. Totally overlooked in the same way that for, for far too long the Bomber Command was overlooked by the Defence Ministry. Uh, there is something called the Burma Star, that's the decoration for those people that fought in, against the Japanese in, in, in the Far East. Um, and the Prince of Wales said on Monday, which was the anniversary of it, uh, because there were still some guys around wearing the Burma Star, you people are forgotten. You people have just not recognised what you all went through. It's all right making a a, a, a nice Hollywood film about what happened with the Chindits in the, in the jungle and bridge on the River Quiet, etc. But the truth is that what you delivered is not recognised, and that's typical. And there ought to be something, this term, something done. What is done, one doesn't know. But that's a very good fact that somebody is pointing out the Burma Star was the most terrible tragedy of an operation. 
Now, growing concern over the rise of violent terrorist groups in West Africa has led to British forces stepping up training and mentoring with regional partners. They're also preparing for a 250-strong deployment to Mali this summer. Rosie Layden went to see the UK servicemen training African partners to fight on this emerging front line. On a windswept training area, Cameroonian, Moroccan and Nigerian soldiers practice house clearance drills skills they need to take on IS and Al-Qaeda cells across the sub-Saharan Sahel region. The volatile area covers North Nigeria, Chad, Niger, Northern Senegal, Burkina Faso, Mali and South Sudan. African nations and Western partners are concerned the growing jihadi threat is spreading fast. Lieutenant Uyime Collins is a commander in the Nigerian Special Boat Service. No one country can fight terrorism alone, so we need regional collaboration because terrorism now is transnational like the Boko Haram swearing alliance to ISIS they're all trying to form unions a good point. We hit each one of the buildings. Britain's role today training rather than deploying helping build an African solution to an African problem personally I think it's better African nations deal with their problem themselves because they know the terrain better than whoever else who all just need is cooperation and I think better technology the UK says this approach is born from past experience. Colonel Matthew Botsford is the commander of the British Military Advisory and Training Team for Nigeria. We have learned a lot in the 15 to 20 years that we did Iraq and Afghanistan in terms of mentoring, coaching and assisting uh, our partners, in this case the Nigerians. And actually this approach works well for the resources we have at the moment, what the Nigerians want, and that's part of the issue, uh, what they need. The final battlefield exercise aims to replicate frontline missions against Boko Haram, the group affiliated to IS. Men from Nigeria's 707 Special Forces Brigade must capture a high-value target and seize bomb-making materials. Captain Samuel Okinari is a commander in the brigade. Back in my country, Boko Haram, you know, they are well known for improvised explosive devices. How they get their materials to form these bombs is quite alarming. When asked if they'd like more British soldiers on the front line, the response is diplomatic. That's not for me to say. If they approve it, good and fine. If not, you know, keep on kicking. But despite an increase in training and mentoring, the security situation in the Sahel is deteriorating fast. This summer, the UK will send 250 troops to Mali as part of a UN peacekeeping force. Critics, including the French, who lead the 5,000-plus Operation Barcane, which also operates in the Sahel, say many more are needed. But Major John House, the commander of B Company 1 Scots, insists Britain is doing enough. We are stepping to the fore, both to build up the capacity of our African partner nations, as well as putting UK personnel in the region uh, to deter and defeat those threats. And the British training effort is attached to a much larger American mission in Africa. They're worried about the speed with which terrorist groups are gaining influence. Major Mike Giacinto serves with the US Special Operations Command, Africa. If one uh, country does collapse, it could create a domino effect. And then if we don't keep uh, violent extremist organizations from creating a safe haven in the region, then yes, they could uh, potentially collaborate and, uh, and build a, a larger entity and could attack US or European interests. Singing and dancing at the end of the training, these Nigerian troops have no shortage of confidence and positivity. 
their qualities they'll need as they prepare to deploy to this new front line against terror. That was Rosie Layden reporting from Senegal. Now, women in the armed forces have been encouraged to push ahead with their careers and told there are no barriers to what they can achieve. Ahead of International Women's Day on Sunday, the Army Women Service Women's Network has held its conference at Sandhurst. Here are some thoughts from some of the service women who attended. So five years ago, I would have questioned why there was any requirement for an Army Service Women's Network, because I genuinely believed that if you worked hard and were a credible officer or soldier, then you'd get the recognition you needed. And I think it's only over time and having heard people's lived experience, both in the military and outside as well, um, that there's a realisation that actually, when you're a minority in any organisation, to have a forum that you can be represented in, to understand the issues, and then feed back to the chain of command and wider organisation is really important. Women, young women, do not understand what the army actually is and what is available to them, what the flexibilities are around families um, and, and working practices. Young people are not educated in the variety of jobs that you can do. Whether If you want to be in the combat arm, you can be in the combat arm. If you want to do catering, you can do catering. Whatever suits you, the, the choices are all open and available and women should go and grab their opportunities. I think challenges will be the retention of women, um, making them feel important, especially as they might leave for maternity reasons. That's certainly been a concern of a lot of my cohort and a lot of my female friends in the army. So the main challenge I, I think that going forward is getting better but it's not quite there yet is when both serving couples or one of them is away operationally then the other one is supported in not going away um, and not being deployed whereas if you're away on an exercise then your serving other can then be deployed on another exercise and they could be abroad and it doesn't have the same support as um, operations do and that's something that I think could be further addressed in the future. Now from women in the army to women in the RAF via BFBS. Stay awake, it's example at BFBS, the forces station. Hello. So, how are we doing today? Very, very well, I hope, on Monday the 2nd of March. Amy Casey here with you. And Amy's here in the studio. You weren't expecting that, were you, I really Amy? wasn't. That was quite bizarre. You are an RAF reservist. And uh, tell us all about it. How, what made you do that? Uh, well, I think I'd not really had that much to do with the military in, in my career until I started working for BFBS. One of my first postings was to Blandford Garrison. Uh, and that was incredible. And then I went off to Bryce Norton. And I was, I was genuinely really inspired by our serving personnel. I mean, there's a lot of banter flying around, but they're generally a really good community. They look after each other. And, uh, and I thought you know what there's great opportunity here as well and I wanted a part of it and you seized it <laughs> seized it what was the training like uh, it was really really good very interesting so basically once you've uh, met all the requirements you've attested and you go off to your pre-basic training and that has a look at what sort of uniforms you're going to wear and when because as you know you get a ton of uniform uh, and looking <laughs> at what's involved with your military career and then you go off to your basic training this is uh, led by RAF Reg and, uh, and you do a little bit more sort of hands on stuff that's when it, the military element really sort of kicks in and then I was fortunate enough to go off to my officer training at, at RAF College Cranwell and that was 
unbelievable. I loved it. I've seen the picture. <laughs> uh, it was what, really good. What's your job then? What do you do? Uh, so I work for 7644, the media squadron. And uh, and basically, yeah, so we support uh, anything that the RAF are doing with media as well as, you know, doing quite a few big projects. So this year, we're, we're, one of the big projects I'm working on at the minute is uh, RAF apprenticeships because it's 100 years of apprenticeships in the Royal Air Force this year. So we're going to be doing a big award ceremony at, at, uh, at Cosford. So, yeah. How often, how often do you do it? So the minimum requirement that you have to do is one weekend a month and you do 15 days continuous training throughout your year And they year give you well. a shed load of money for doing it. Uh, uh, well, I <laughs> uh, wouldn't go that far, no. <laughs> you have to have an employer who's... Uh, who's supportive really for this kind of thing don't you and I suppose in this particular job you are very lucky what about the kind of people who are with you yeah, I mean, it was a really diverse group that were on my officer training. I mean, there were solicitors and barristers and fraud prevention specialists and, uh, you know, lowly media presenters as well. But um, <laughs> it was quite extraordinary. And I think one thing that people might not know is that the, the demographic that were on that course, they were sort of around the mid 40s. That mm. really surprised me when I went there because the RAF, they want life skills. They want to bring all these new positive thinkers and forward thinkers with, with different ideas years that uh, into into the fold and and teach them the military way and hopefully bring some new fresh ideas to do the table as well. Do you feel a bit well. military? More. I do feel a bit more military. Yeah. Do you walk differently. <laughs> it's, it's surprising. Do I'm you still, stand differently. My timing's still not great. I'm not going to lie to you, <laughs> but yeah. Apart from that, I mean, the I've, other thing is that the, the, the commercial people sort of used to send somebody off on a Friday night to go and do military training and get somebody better back on the Monday. Is yeah. that still the, the, the philosophy? I think that's the case, you know. You can't improve on Amy Casey, let's face it. <laughs> Amy, listen. You can only get one. <laughs> really good to see you. Thank you for talking to us about Thank it, Amy. You. Thank you. Um, that's it for this week. My thanks to all of our guests and to you for listening and also to Gisela Waldron who has been our editor on this programme for 10 years and is now on to Pastures She's New. She's now managed to get a job. She's got, yes. From us, we'll be back next time next week. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>